Hey, Egghead! Sing Fair Harvard. Fair Harvard, I... <gasps> you, sir, have the boorish manners of a Yaley. Ahoy uh, hoy everybody and welcome to another Talking Simpsons interview. I am one of your hosts for this one, Bob Mackey. That name again is Bob Mackey and who is here with me today? <laughs> Proud Harvard appreciator Henry Gilbert. Hi. And today's interview is with John Vitti, a legendary writer of The Simpsons, The Critic, King of the Hill, The Office, and so many more things. We talked with him about his work on The Simpsons and some other projects too because he was one of the original writers for the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a perfect time to chat with him because we just did our 30th anniversary chat through season one and normally our interviews are patreon exclusive uh, for five dollar and up subscribers at patreon.com slash talking simpsons but we wanted to share this one with you guys because it just is so cool and we've been chasing after john Beatty for so long and i also think you know you listeners can get a preview of what you're missing out on on the like the 20 other awesome interviews we've done in the past that are exclusive to the patreon yeah we've talked to people like uh, mike reese dan mcgrath dan graney more than just dan's though yes. david silverman <laughs> mark kirkland who else i mean bill oakley and josh weinstein yeah. uh, multiple times mike scully more than once as well jeff martin a mm-hmm. contemporary of john Beatty as well Jay Kogan. Jay Kogan, very recently. Like, tons, tons of people who uh, they tell us stories about the early stage things we've never heard before. Like, we learned a lot of new stuff in this John Vitti yes. interview as well. There is shocking new information on this interview <laughs> that I had never heard before. Yes, yes. So, uh, I guess, without further ado, let's go into our interview with John Vitti. And if you guys enjoy this and would love to hear more of our chats with tons of Simpsons veterans, please consider joining at the $5 level at patreon.com slash talking simpsons Uh, well, so hey, John, welcome. I I guess I wanted to start with um, the your comedy career. I believe began at the the Harvard Lampoon, and you know, with with a bunch of future Simpsons writers on the staff, like Conan and Algie and Mike Reese and Greg Daniels and George Meyer. Like, what was that like? You know, back when we were doing it, there was no expectation that there was going to be a career that would come out of this. Jim Downey was class of 1974, and he right for Saturday night. But that is an anomaly. We just thought we were fighting over our college humor magazine. And it, you know, and if you're thinking like, wow, I got to get those magazines with all those people writing for them. We didn't really know what we were doing. College <laughs> kids aren't really very good at writing comedy. But that didn't stop <laughs> us from having really vicious fights over the direction of the college humor magazine and who should <laughs> be elected and who should be president. It was, you know, looking back, it was an amazing group of people, but we were also college kids. It was, I, you know, I owe my career to that place but it it uh, it was it, it was intense in both good and bad ways and uh, we always like knowing this even though it doesn't matter that much uh, what did you study at Harvard you know I actually want I hadn't I was an economics major because I wanted to have a saleable skill that would help me get a job when I was out of college and like halfway through I decided I didn't believe in the Harvard economics program which sounded like a good way to talk yourself out of writing a thesis but uh, <laughs> it actually I, I guessed right like within years after after I graduated, the University of Chicago guys pretty much disproved or like made the Harvard 
approach, the Keynesian approach, uh, fairly irrelevant. So I, I was actually correct in that my economics education was fairly worthless. Hmm. But uh, I don't know to what extent I actually analyzed that correctly and to what extent I didn't want to write a thesis. Who who was president of your time there? I know Conan was for, for a time, but I'm not sure exactly where you overlap. Yeah, no, the, the, I just missed Conan and Greg. They were class of 84. I was class of 81. Actually, the co-presidents the year I was there were me and Mike Reese and the and the vice president or the IBIS they called it was Al Jean. So we've just been together forever. You wow. know that it happened uh, randomly that uh, that Mike and Al and I were back in the same room together on the first season of The Simpsons. But yeah, it was it was a strange feeling. Great, you know, it was fine. We all you know, and we you know we'd, we'd all grown up. We all worked together just fine. But it was it was a, a weird, unexpected thing when it happened. So you went from the Harvard. Lampoon to uh, SNL, is that correct? I know it seems like there was maybe a few years in between then, and I was just wondering. Yeah, no, I, I had a, I had a regular job for three years. It, it just wasn't a given that you would go from the dorm room to the rewrite room the way. Uh, I think by the 90s, that had started to happen a lot. And I've always been grateful for that, that I actually had a normal job for not that much money, including things like overnight shifts and working with people who had nothing to do with comedy writing. It kind of, it's, 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 a, it's a life experience you can draw on for the rest of your career as a writer. It just kind of gives you a better perspective on things like how lucky you are to get paid to write <laughs> TV comedy. I think, you know, yeah. it's working a real job really helps with that. And how did you end up on SNL? Uh, and if you have any memories of of that experience, please let us know, because all I remember uh, of your experience, it's been like a matter of public record, is one statement on a commentary saying you did not have a great time as part of that uh, crew. That. Well, that wasn't, it wasn't their fault at all. I, I, you know, I, it's such a nice thing Jim Downey did. I got my job through the Harvard Lampoon. Not that you got hired, but you got read, which is always the, the hard thing for an aspiring writer. There were always big stacks of spec scripts that writers were asked to read if you had the time. And nobody this article, and he wrote that article. And one of the articles he liked was was one of mine. And so I was allowed to submit material to Saturday night that actually I totally got my start at Saturday night through the Harvard Lampoon People parody. Can you can you talk about anything that actually uh, you got on the air there? Any memorable sketches that were uh, yours from that time period that people might remember? You always have to be careful talking about collaborations. The thing that was best remembered, I was Robert Smigel's supporting writer on his Trekkie convention sketch where William Shatner told the Trekkies to get a life. That's great. Ah, uh, classic. And, and in the, I mean, in these days, probably there was no internet back then, and Robert had never seen an episode of Star Trek, and I had seen <laughs> every episode like three times. <laughs> and so he needed somebody who knew the show to sit in with him. You know, over it was you know the, the sketches were all written from midnight to dawn on Tuesday night, and so you know he did. Hopefully, I was a positive part of shaping the sketch or being an audience for him as well. But it's totally his sketch. It's like Get a Life was totally his phrase, but he needed a co-writer because he didn't know the show and so mm. that will always be my happiest experience there and, and it's something I learned on The Simpsons too no matter how many famous people we met, you meet on this on The Simpsons the most exciting people to meet are people who were stars when you were a kid you know like <laughs> after all, my whole career the, I was never more excited than meeting William Shatner on Saturday night and Adam West on The Simpsons mm. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that compares to that and at a certain point does uh, do you like pitch writing a thing for Adam West 
Plaster, William Shatner, just for the the thrill of getting to meet them. No, and honestly, that was a big it was a big motivation in in developing the story pitch for Mister Plow because I I always liked the car show. I, I went there every year, and, and then I realized, well, that's a, it's a total Act One set piece. And then I kind of had that breakthrough: if the Simpsons go to the car show, they can meet Adam West, and if the Simpsons meet Adam West, I can meet Adam West. <laughs> and then it became like a life or death thing to create a story around the car show and replacing the car that uh, that Sam would buy. After Saturday Night Live, I, I believe you just had uh, one season there. Like, where where did Army Man come in, and and when was uh, when did you become a part of that? Army Man was something George did from Colorado. He he quit Saturday Night. He was incredibly successful on the Letterman Show and at Saturday Night too. And he was like done with comedy writing. He uh, he looked at a map of the United States, decided what was the best place to live in the whole country, and picked Boulder, Colorado, <laughs> and and went out there and just you know with this incredibly low tech process by modern standards, started making this little newsletter and asked people to contribute. And so yeah, the the hop from Saturday Night to The Simpsons was a because I worked with George on the on Saturday Night, and b because Sam Simon like I don't know even the connection, but just found Army Man and decided he liked Army Man and started asking George, what Army Man contributors would you recommend as <laughs> uh, writers for my new show? It's it's hard to come across copies of Army Man today, but I've I've seen a few online and it's pretty incredible. Like this, you know, late '80s newsletter has a lot of this flavor of what I think of like online into alternative comedy today is. Like, do you do you feel like it was kind of ahead of the curve on that type of comedy? That sort of thing was was sort of out there. I mean, you know, certainly there are, there's an intersection between Army Man and what became the Twitter sensibility. If Jack Handy at Saturday Night just, you know, sued Twitter and said, I invented Twitter with deep thoughts, you know, he actually, <laughs> he wouldn't win the lawsuit, but he would have a fr- pretty good creative claim. So that sort of thing was out there and there just wasn't any means to do it. And George kind of came up with one. And it was something you couldn't say no to because what, you can't come up with like a two line idea. And some people, you know, had a gift for it more than others, just like Twitter. But everybody tried it. It was always fun. And it was just, and again, like the late 70s Lampoon, I don't think anybody was doing it thinking this is going to find its way to Hollywood producers and we'll all start working in TV shows. It was just, we had a lot of time on our hands and George had the idea and it, and it seemed like fun. And it was like with all these things with comedy writers, trying to come up with something that George would think was good was always worth it. It was always <laughs> worth the effort. And it, it's, that's, that's always true. Trying to come up with a script that Sam Simon thinks is good is the best motivation you can possibly have as a writer. So, you know, Army Man had that quality. It was just a bunch of people. You, your hope would be that they would like something as much as you liked what they were doing. It was it was a pretty pure and fun thing. So a fellow contributor with you uh, on Army Man was John Swartzwelder. And whenever we talk to a Simpsons writer or producer, <laughs> we always love to ask uh, about John Swartzwelder's stories. I think we get new information about him with every interview we do. So what was it like to uh, just be in the room with John? And what was it like to know him because he seems like a very mysterious man to us as Simpsons fans. You know, I think I had the hardest challenge in working with Schwarzwelder in that I was the other story editor on the staff with John Schwarzwelder on it. And I, you know, Saturday night had just been a tough thing for me. It's like, it's all written after midnight. I hate being up after midnight. I'm possibly <laughs> the least funny person in the world after midnight. Uh, it's it's very pressure packed. It, it, it rewards people who thrive under pressure and I collapse under pressure. So 
so you know saturday night had been tough and then and then i got my first job on a staff as a story editor and the other story editor was john swartzwelder <laughs> and i had no experience i just thought that's how good you had to be to work as a story editor in hollywood and 30 years later john swartzwelder's scripts are still the greatest scripts <laughs> i've ever seen anyone write including showrunners but i didn't know that i just thought that was the standard i had to meet if i was going to have a career writing comedy. It was a very cruel joke that was played <laughs> on me. But it was it was it was such a I realize now that, you know, not that many people had the experience of being in the office every day with Schwarzwelder because he he very quickly graduated to that writing at home thing. But, you know, it was really amazing just to read his scripts. You know, like you really, you know, every... I wrote Bart the Genius at home by myself before I moved out to California. Everything else I did at The Simpsons was different for having read John Schwarzwelder writing The Simpsons. Hmm. He just, on the the script writing level, he just showed us that the, the show could get more into a half hour than we thought it could. And then from there, you took that challenge and you tried to, you know, put your own spin on it because you couldn't just copy Swartzwelder. That would be lame and it would be a disservice to everyone, including Swartzwelder. You had to do your own version of it. But he just, you know, in the early seasons, he just handed in a series of scripts that just took the bar to new levels. You said that you wrote Bart the Genius before you moved to California. It seems like a lot of the initial scripts were written in isolation or as not part of a writing team before you all came together. At what point of the part of the uh, development process was there a proper writing room on The Simpsons? We all wrote our first script just working with Sam and Matt. And then Sam started to hire a regular staff. And Jay and Wally, you know, were already on site physically. They were working for the Tracy Ellman show. And uh, and Mike and Al were working with Sam at, at its Gary Shandling show. So, you know, there was, you know, Sam had connections to everybody, but we were not in a room together until the show started to go into production. My first my first day at The Simpsons was the table reading for Bart the Genius, which was the second episode. They they produced the first episode, which is the, the Babysitter Bandit show, which I think was shown 13th because of animation problems. Mm. That show that those guys did pretty much by themselves. And then uh, it was a very strange thing. I moved to California three days later. My first day at The Simpsons was the Bart the Genius table reading. Wow. And then, and then the first season was very different from the others in that Sam was still had a part-time job working at the Tracy Ullman show. And so there were plenty of days where I'm sure there was production stuff going on. I was the only full-time employee at The Simpsons, like on the writing staff. There were plenty of days where I went in at 10 o'clock, sat down in my office waiting to see if the phone would ring. The phone did not ring and six o'clock came and I went home again and I just was so petrified that something would happen and that I wouldn't be at my desk that uh, I probably went in on a number of days that I didn't have to. But it was done in a much more informal way because Sam was doing it part-time. Jay and Wally were you know, at the Tracy Ullman show two or three days a week. And Mike and Al had production obligations on, at its Gary Shambling show. Hmm. So, and, and you know, you can see it the first season, of course, is, is such a beginning effort. And, you know, and, and part of the fact was that, you know, it, it was a part-time job for a lot of people. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, looking back at the, just the writing credits on on the first season, there's, like, on Crepes of Wrath, uh, you're one of, like, uh, four writers credited on it. Like, how how was that? That one written in in such a way to have that many credited writers on it. <laughs> the, the Crepes of Wrath was written in a way that no episode would be written today. <laughs> they just were out of stories, and it was we needed a thirteenth episode. 
And Sam could do everything. And among the things Sam could do was write a script in the room with no first draft. He had done it on Taxi all the time. And so he just said, well, we need a 13th episode. Everybody come in. We're going to start writing. And The Crepes of Wrath was written start to finish just with Sam talking the script with us in the room, tossing out ideas, hoping that Sam would like them. But wow. it's it's an incredibly raggedy episode that I've never <laughs> timed it. But that scene of Principal Skinner sitting on the couch with Homer explaining the premise of the episode it feels like five minutes it's like nothing you should ever do in an animated show like have characters sit on a couch and talk for that long i i it always surprises me when people remember that episode fondly because it was written in such a crazy way that you should never write an animated episode ever again you know i think we just did that one and timed that scene to be like i think i think it borders on three minutes three minutes i yeah. think it yeah oh okay <laughs> yeah no it's it's endless and but, you know, it's like people would like, you can always pitch something for Principal Skinner talking to Homer and it kind of all goes in and, you know, and you kind of get into that mindset. Well, we have 20 minutes to fill and, and this all seems like it might get laughs. So let's keep going. It was a totally different process than when you were starting with a Schwarzwelder draft and then building on that. Or, you know, as often happened when Schwarzwelder really nailed one, just doing a tiny little touch up and sending it to the animators. Well, and the, uh, the Simpsons was your first half hour show and... And your first, uh, you know, animated project like that, that had to be a lot of a lot of lessons learned in that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was so much that we, you know, we learned on the fly and, you know, and when and we made mistakes, too, you know, I mean, something I remember really clearly was, uh, you know, Bart would swear in the first couple of seasons because, you know, we thought, well, kids do. Let's be real. And so he would say, damn and bastard. And then, you know, it wasn't pressure groups of the networks or anything. Our friends and loved ones. <laughs> started calling us up and say saying you know thanks thanks very much my my young son is running around the house saying bastard 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 you know you guys you guys are the best keep it up and so we realized oh no of course kids are much too good at picking up swear words you can't do that and so like and you'll see like around halfway through the second season when we realized what a bad idea that was bart stopped swearing and he never stops again hmm. like we, we we totally make made mistakes and that you know and that comes up now and then on parts of the show that are legacy parts of the show because it was created in 1989 that mm. you know you know, hopefully we did things that people liked and that that were positive. But we, you know, we 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 messed up all the time, and you know, and and just because there were so many people and so many competent people and you know, really talented people who came after us to do the show, it's you know, it kind of becomes funny. But you know, I, I you know, something I, I talked about in the Every Simpsons Ever Twitter event was you know, I was the creator, quote unquote, of Lenny and Carl, and <laughs> Lenny and Carl were created in like ten seconds because I needed. <laughs> a couple of guys to be at the bachelor party with Homer and the Homer's Night Out episode. And there's they're so not thought out because I was behind on the script the whole time and I had no time to think about who these guys were. If you had told me when I created them that Lenny and Carl would be on TV longer than Fraser Crane or Matt Dillon from Gunsmoke, <laughs> I would have been sick to my stomach. You know, like if there, there are parts of the show that have lasted forever that got so little thought 
and and you know it, it, nobody who who questions parts of the show should ever be called stupid because you know we you know we you know a lot of I you know I, I feel like Lenny and Carl became much better characters when people started getting comedy out of the fact of what bad characters they were <laughs> you know like in, in the softball episode I think Schwarzwelder started trading on the fact that Lenny was a terrible character and all of a sudden he became a much better character there were only a few of us we were we were mostly in our 20s and we had a lot to do and hopefully Sam got some good stuff out of the fact that none of us had worked in 30 minute comedy before but we also made mistakes that nobody else would have made so season two kicked off with uh, Bart Gets an F which to this date is the most watched episode of the show ever so when you're on the staff at that time did you feel like the phenomenon uh, would be over like very soon did you see it as a fad or did you have confidence that this show would last six or even eight seasons you know yeah you know I was just this Christmas at a Christmas party and Bill Odenkirk on the current staff asked me like well what was it like back in those days when the show was so huge I mean what did that feel like and what I had to tell him so I'd say you know we never really felt that there were a few weeks when the show first premiered and all of a sudden it was like jumping in the ratings week to week and it was in the top 20 but almost you know before we had any time to register that because we were writing the second season we found out that they were taking us from our beautiful little time slot between In Living Color and Married with Children and putting us on a night of programming that had never existed on the Fox network before on Thursday night against the Cosby show. Uh, you know, there's a lot we didn't know about Bill Cosby then. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was incredibly popular. And, you know, we, you know, in a show that had been such a formative thing for a lot of us was Batman. And so we just thought, OK, well, we're Batman. We're going to last two seasons and <laughs> fight for a third. Wow. And that's it. We're done. And, you know, we, we went from being, you know, a top, we actually, over the summer, our shows re-ran well, and we actually got in the top 10 a couple of times. But before any of that had time to really sink in and become our routine, we were finishing second in, in the time slot to Cosby. And so, at, you know, looking back, I can see, well, the Fox Network knew that we were helping to create a night of programming for them. And then 90210 came along and made that happen, too. And so they got Thursday night out of that and that was probably more valuable to them than us doing huge numbers between in living color and married with children but we didn't perceive that at the mm. time we just we we thought we were screwed uh, it, it was it was it, we never perceived ourselves as being the writers of this giant hit show that everybody watched because it, it didn't really play out that long that way well you you mentioned batman and i i love how much you can just feel the love for adam west and the and just classic comic books in the show i we asked jeff martin this in our interview with him too but like i get the feel that compared to other writing staffs back then uh this was a more like comic book reading nerdier staff than uh, than a lot of sitcoms well i think for sure we were nerdier the comic book culture hadn't evolved to that extent yet yet i mean matt totally knew the comic stores and and you know and, and an assignment and a really happy one when you started was to read matt's underground comics which are so interesting i think if any simpsons fan who hasn't looked at the really early life in hell comic it's it's really worthwhile because they're so much more judgmental and and, and it's more <laughs> where we were like you know because in your late 20s you're fresh out of childhood you've got you know all your childhood traumas are so fresh and the fact that you can dump on your parents on national television is such an amazing happy 
thing. <laughs> so, you know, we were very much in that place. But yeah, you know, I, most of, you know, I don't want to speak for the whole staff, but something that was pretty universal. I think, you know, the shows that we really grew up on were that really spoke to us were Batman and Get Smart. And I, I really, Schwarzwalder and I would talk about that sometimes. Like, who do you write for? And and I think Schwarzwalder said it and I immediately could. He said, like, I wrote, I write for like a 10-year-old version of me. Mm. And he just, you know, and you try to, you know, who's the dead? center target audience for the simpsons and we both felt you try to picture a smart kid like around 10 to 12 years old and you write for that kid and you try to write it smart enough that adult can like it too but yeah i mean a lot of my basic thought trying to you know push myself and get better at it would if i could be to some kid what buck henry and lorenzo sample were to me hmm. Mm. that would be really cool because that was amazing when you were a kid and you turn on the TV and, you know, and these really smart, you know, like nobody was ever better than Buck Henry. And there was Buck Henry working really hard to do a silly show that would make you laugh and be, and respecting your intelligence. And it was so cool because so much of TV doesn't. And, you know, and for us anyway, the original generation, I think that was our inspiration to try to do what those people did. So I definitely wanted to touch upon the episode uh, Brother from the Same Planet because when the uh, DVDs for that season came out about, I don't know, 15 years ago, it was uh, personally shocking to me that uh, it was a disliked episode by Jim Brooks. And even he showed it to David Merkin before David uh, became the showrunner and said, do not write episodes like this. this <laughs> I think it's a hilarious episode. Nothing seems wrong with it to me. So yeah, I just I just wanted to know, like, what were your thoughts on that? You know, it's an interesting thing that you could teach in a comedy class. It was, it was a hard episode for me, too. I was not at all happy with that story assignment because... Because the substitute teacher show had been a really intense, very way too real experience for me. Like it's such a pure story episode, and I and I really, you know, like I I was not thrilled with the assignment because you realized it wasn't a comedy episode. You really had to make the story work. You had to find something real and and find you know what it meant to you and write and, and all this real writer stuff that I really wasn't comfortable with. And so when that was over, I really wanted that to be the one time I ever did anything like that. And the, but then if you look at it structurally brother from the same planet is exactly the same story it's that bart finds a replacement father <laughs> figure that causes him to question homer and creates conflict with homer leading to a resolution and i was so unhappy that i had been given that story again mm -hmm that I just wasn't going to go to that place again. And so I, I intentionally wrote it sillier. I think I just said, I'm not doing Lisa's substitute anytime <laughs> you ask me to. So I, I didn't get into the story in a real way. And if you look, there's a really shameful dissolve in Act 3 that... <laughs> Homer and the big brother get into a giant knockdown drag out fight and then Bart says stop and I lied to you which implies the beginning of the process and then there's a dissolve and then when you come out of the dissolve Bart has said goodbye to the big brother and made up with Homer which are the two <laughs> big scenes in act three of Lisa's substitute and they're absolutely necessary scenes to the story you, it's really bad of you as a writer to skip those scenes when you write the story but I intentionally skip them because I didn't want to revisit the two big scenes in Lisa's Substitute. So you're writing the story and not writing the story. And so Jim is actually quite correct <laughs> that it, it's, it's an incorrectly written story, but it was a weird situation where episode-level honesty and series-level honesty came into conflict. I just didn't want to, I never wanted to do a 
knockoff hmm. of the substitute teacher episode, even if it meant writing the Big Brother episode incorrectly. And so, I mean, Jim is actually correct that that, <laughs> that episode is written incorrectly, but I did it on purpose. Interesting. Wow. I never considered that as, as a kind of almost sequel to Lisa's Substitute, but wow, yeah. I... <laughs> well, I mean, actually what I would, you know, in terms of like, if I would, I, I have friends who teach comedy writing classes in college, I would never attempt to do that. But I mean, something I think it really demonstrates in an interesting way is there are so many brilliant guys in the rewrite room and they and they always add so much to it. But it it's a good illustration of how much the writer's drafts still affect the tone of the show even after everyone's done. Because that's the exact same story. And it's even written by the same person. But the first draft is written by the same person going to create two completely different effects. And after the rewrite and the animation and everything is done and everyone's contributed to it and the actors have played it, they feel you know, I mean, hopefully, I mean, that was my goal anyway. They don't at all feel like two of the same thing because the first draft was written in a different tone hmm. than the first one. You left the show uh, basically in season four, but you, not in name, but you do have credits on several clip shows. And so I, I was curious how you, you ended up being the clip show guy for, for that era of The Simpsons. Yeah, I know. I do. Those are less of a thing now that now that there's like streaming, like they're so irrelevant. But <laughs> at the time, they were really controversial. I just, I, I, it was always passionate to me to say, you know, I never signed a contract agreeing to write the clip shows. That was a result of there was just a, a, like a, a contract problem with Fox that they had signed a lot of guys and blown the budget. And then I came along and it was time for my contract to be invoked. And <laughs> Fox didn't want to pay it. But then the next thing that happened was they got football and so they wanted new Simpsons episodes every week in the fall which because it's an animated show they didn't really have the wherewithal to do and so after a lot of discussion the compromise was well if you write these clip shows we will honor the contract that we should have honored anyway <laughs> and so that that's where the pseudonym comes from and the first one was so hastily done it's like just completely forgettable and you know I, I, I won't even say the name of it <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy that it's forgotten the second one was written a couple years later for Bill and Josh and they hated clip shows as much as I did and it actually kind of became a fun thing for everybody the, the 138th episode that we kind of used it as a time to do our comedy history of the show and like I was talking about you know, kind of make fun about things about the show that we all knew hadn't turned out that well and <laughs> it was kind of a freeing thing and, and and Bill said I wasn't in there for the rewrite he said the writing staff all got in the spirit of, of making fun of seven years of our mistakes and <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a very happy rewrite yeah, for being a clip show, the 138th episode spectacular is very quotable. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I did. Yeah, they, they. I loved several of the things the rewrite room gave me. It was, yeah, it was fun. It was, you know, I, I, I wrote it from my office at the Larry Sanders show in a couple of days. I never wrote <laughs> another episode like that, and it was just, it just kind of happened. And everyone, it kind of, we kind of quickly found a handshake frequency that all of us were happy writing, and so that was a really happy experience. I think, and like Bill said, it was one of the first things he said. I think, let's be honest about the fact that clip shows are really cheesy and that this is this is a, a fairly pathetic thing we're doing and then try to make that a virtue 
And so, I mean, I, I, I took that thought and went with it, and so did the rewrite room. And so, you know, hopefully, and, you know, and of course we did the thing that we always did, you know, and, and I said this on Twitter, you know, when we needed to make something work and we didn't know how to make it work, our solution was we called Phil Hartman. And, <laughs> you know, and so we just, we very quickly decided that we're going to have Phil Hartman tell the history of The Simpsons, and that's what this episode is going to be. And, and, you know, it, to whatever extent that show works, and you do, of course you're not obligated to love a clip show, but so much of of that like everything in the simpsons that we did you know it to, to whatever ever extent anything succeeded it's so inextricably entwined with you know what the actors made of it and you know and of course with that episode it's all about phil hartman so cape fear was the last episode produced by that original writing staff and it's a very crazy episode and uh, based on the commentary you guys recorded a long time ago it seemed like the crew wanted to do every crazy zany joke they could before they left the show to the point where maybe internally some people weren't very happy with how much the reality was being bended what do you remember about the writing process of that final episode with that staff well hey well good one knowing that that's been a mini crusade of mine that they, they, it was perceived of course when the show was broadcast as the second episode or the third of the fifth season and it, and it in fact yeah it, it's the last episode done by the original guys and, and it is the way it is only because that's what it is it's 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 a reflection of that it was the end of the fourth season we had all done a terrible job of taking care of ourselves physically we were all mm-hmm completely broken and needed to stop doing it and we are out of good stories it breaks so many rules like you're not you're never supposed to hang an entire episode on a parody of a single thing i mean you're supposed to do that for 30 seconds because you know if somebody if a viewer doesn't like that idea then it only takes down 30 seconds of the episode it doesn't ruin the whole episode for them uh you know you're just not supposed to do that it's a bad idea but we did it anyway because we were exhausted and we all knew we were leaving and we kind of thought what are you going to do five us. And so I think in a, in a way, it's a very pure place to come from creatively. Like the first season, so many of us assumed that the show was only going to run 13 episodes, but it didn't inspire us to not try. It just took us to a place of, well, make yourself happy with it because this is the only time you're ever going to write for TV. And I think similarly with Cape Fear, it was like, well, you know, we can't lose our jobs because we're all quitting. <laughs> so, and, you know, a 30-minute parody of Cape Fear isn't going to be a great story episode. So let's just have fun with it. And it, it really turned into, you know, one of my favorite experiences. I, I hated the fact when I found out that, that the last episode of the season was going to be my script, I was so unhappy because the script, the week that your script was read at table and recorded was always a miserable week. I, I hated table reading week. I, I Very few writers enjoyed it. And so I really just wanted my last week, my last of the Simpsons. And I was so unhappy when it went up on the board and there was Cape Fear at number 22, but it wound up being such a magical, perfect thing, even to the extent that part of the rewrite was run by Sam. Mike and Al were writing the critic pilot, and so they, they couldn't be there all the time. So for half of the pre-table rewrite, it was actually, you know, there were new guys from, you know, Conan was there, and, you know, and Jeff Martin was there. But it wasn't a completely a recreation of the first season room, but all of a sudden there was Sam running the, the Simpsons rewrite room again. Wow. It was really fun. Hmm. And yeah, my last day at the Simpsons was the record of 
Cape Fear. And, you know, Sam hung out with us and we had our champagne from our agents because we just got nominated for the animated Emmy. And so we kind of sat out on the front steps and drank our champagne. And then Sam took us to a bar in Century City. It was it was a fantastic mm. last day. And so, you know, we had no expectations. I don't know if that this survived to the DVD track, but it had a horrible table rating. You know, we didn't, you know, we we didn't have Kelsey. Kelsey. It was always hard to get Kelsey Grammer. It was so wonderful of him to do that because he was always so in demand, you know. And I think by that point, now I guess Frazier hadn't started, but, you know, he's always had a huge part. Live audience shows are always working. Like even when you're not rehearsing, you're standing in place and letting the cameras take their marks from you. And there's always something to do. And so it was really hard to get him. And so we didn't have him for the table reading. And it was just a horrible table reading. It was a complete failure. And so I did a, the miserable walk back from the table reading room back to the writer's room, certain that the last 48 hours were going to be a miserable 80% rewrite of Cape Fear and everybody was going to hate me. And that was going to be my last experience at The Simpsons. And then we all sat down and there was a long silence and Al sighed and said, it'll probably be fine when Kelsey does it, which he never <laughs> did. Al, was ne- Al, Al never forgave a bad table reading. And the one time he did it was Cape Fear because we were all so exhausted and nobody wanted to ruin our last two days at The Simpsons. So, you know, the script that went on the air by any normal rules would have gotten like an 80% rewrite after the table reading. And we just did it anyway. So there's so many levels of things about Cape Fear that never would have happened in any other situation than the last episode that we did. <laughs> and I have, I have one last question about Simpsons uh, before we move on to, we want to talk more about your other uh, writing jobs too, but do you have a favorite joke that you wrote in an episode that's not credited to you? Because I know everybody, everybody writes uh, on every script. You know, I don't really, I it's always up to other people what's good. I don't know. I, you know, yeah, I know. I, I The one that was, I, was incorrectly credited to me for a long time, Matt got, uh, remembered it, that I wrote the look at me I'm Davy Crockett joke in the Treehouse of Horror <laughs> and, and it got a lot of play and all of a sudden I was getting credit for that joke and it was totally Jay Kogan's joke and so it's always been a you know a minor project of mine to make sure that uh, Jay Kogan gets credit for that Jay and Wally are the most undercredited people on the on the original staff I hope mm. you've had a chance to get those guys on the show Th- that's so yep. funny you say that because <laughs> we just interviewed Jay Kogan last month and he mentioned the Davy Crockett joke is one of his favorites that he wrote so. yeah yeah, no, good, good. He should work on that too, because that was such an unfair thing. You know, it's so hard, especially as we get older. You just, you know, in 1997, I like could have told you who pitched every line of every episode <laughs> that I worked on. And, and, and thankfully, you're like, you're a happier person when that happens. Your brain lets go of that. And so, you know, you go from worrying about every little detail to just being incredibly grateful for the amazing group of people you got to work with. But as a result, it's harder to do retrospective interviews on the show because you don't have every line burned into your memory like that. So we want to move on to uh, King of the Hill next because you were a big part of that show. Uh, you wrote some of my favorite episodes like mm-hmm. Dogdale Afternoon. And I really wanted to ask about your experience on that show because I haven't seen a lot of interviews with writers of King of the Hill. Uh, it, there's not a lot of commentaries for King of the Hill. So there's very little behind the scenes information about that show and we love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's a non-random thing. Greg Daniels is, is just one of the best showrunners in TV history. And I think part of the reason why King of the Hill doesn't get discussed as much is because he then went and created the American version of The Office, including people from King of the Hill like Paul Lieberstein. And so people tend to talk about 
the office and, and King of the Hill. But I, I kind of personally, I like that King of the Hill is more of a, a niche show, more of a cult show, just because we all got so, you know, I part of us will, will always be uncomfortable with how big The Simpsons got. It was never really our expectation or our intention even. So I, I, I like that King of the Hill has a smaller audience that gets it and enjoys it. And, and it's played so well in Adult Swim. Mm-hmm. But it was an amazing, it was, it was a fantastic group of writers. Uh, you know, Norm Hiscock has had a, a terrific career. He went on to the office world shows, you know, Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's, he's one of my favorite comedy writers ever. Paul Lieberstein, of course, fantastic comedy writer, and you know, became famous as Toby, but <laughs> on the short list of great comedy writers mm-hmm. of my generation. There's just very few people better than Greg at, put, at casting a show and putting together a writing staff. And he actually said once that he, he just, he, he said, if, if, if it pleases you to know this, all of you have the reputation of being pleasant to deal with. I just, I, I, I've been in difficult writer's rooms and life's too short and I'm not willing to do it. And all of you are known to be nice to work with. And, and it was so true. It was, it was the happiest job I would, I ever had. It, oh, was, wow. it was such a democratic show. It's like it was the best idea carried the day, no matter who said it. It was beautifully produced. Greg really worried about the technical production aspects and how to not make himself a bottleneck. And so it was, he delegated and layered things. So we were always working on something. There was never the stop and start nature of it that that plagues almost every show. It was, comedy writing is never easy, but it was, it was, it was such a pleasant thing to do. And it was so different creatively because Mike really didn't want this show to be a Simpsons knockoff. And he was actually quite uncomfortable with how many Simpsons writers were in the vicinity. <laughs> and, and he was very quick to, to let people know when the show was getting too Simpsony. And you, and you never felt more evil than <laughs> when you drifted over the line and set off the mic alarm and, and, and Mike said, this is why I, I, I'm not happy with the number of Simpsons writers on my writing staff. And so, uh, you know, it was, it, but it was a great experience in that it was such a different show, uh, you know, and and it was such a, I, I always kind of feel like the best I ever was as a writer was on King of the Hill because mm. I had done the Larry Sanders show and I learned so much from Gary Shandling about writing comedy. And so, I and, and I was still in my 30s. And, you know, like then shortly after that, I was writing movies, but I was in my 40s and that's they get quickly get comedy quickly gets harder when you get past 40 but i was more i finally gave up on some of the directionlessness i would just go anywhere for a joke writing the simpsons episode and you know sometimes that's sort of fun but it also leads to crazy raggedy stuff like if you watch mr plow nothing happens in act two of mr plow it's (laughs) it's an act long montage of snow plowing jokes and you're really not supposed to do that but you know and sometimes you would discover good things that way but finally after doing larry sanders i accepted that forward drive and dramatic tension are are fairly important to comedy, not just drama, but to comedy as well. And so I think I was a more disciplined writer at King of the Hill. And it was it was actually kind of a happy thing in terms of the pace and the tone in that I feel like King of the Hill is closer to the first couple of seasons on The Simpsons than like, you know, by the time The Simpsons got into the later episodes. It was packed so tight, moved so fast in a way that was right for The Simpsons. But it was actually really fun to go and write for something that moved about the pace of a second season Simpsons episode. So one uh, very specific question I wanted to ask you about King of the Hill is that one of your episodes is called John Vitti Presents 
presents Return oh, to yeah. La Grunta. That seems like an inside <laughs> joke, and I really want to know the yeah. story as to why you are credited in the title of the episode. Why did that happen? Yeah, that that's that is if you're wondering what the punishment is for not being in on the rewrite of a script you wrote, <laughs> that that is the punishment. I was on an overall deal at that point, and they were just Fox was being kind of insistent about getting a pilot from me on time, and with the result that I wrote the first draft for that episode, which the title was Luann's Presence. It was a very straightforward one. They, sometimes I like doing that. I didn't feel like there needed to be a pun in every title. <laughs> but so that was my title. And then I had to say, sorry, guys, I'm, uh, you know, the big company is insisting on a script. I, I can't be there the week you rewrite it. And so, it, you know, they it was it was a really nice, re- it was, you know, it was respectful. I liked everything they added. But uh, <laughs> the one thing they did that because I wasn't there and and I I never would have voted in favor of that was they changed my really bland title to a title that had my name in it and so that that's how that happened and you know and it, and it was obvious if you complain about it the answer is obviously well show up for the rewrite next time and you'll have something to say about what the title of the episode is uh so i never made an issue out of it and you know it was just it was just a joke and it was again like you know we didn't really anticipate the streaming era and none of us anticipated the long life and syndication these episodes had we're so grateful for all of that but you know i don't think anybody in the room that day anticipated that 20 years from now I'll have to explain why I put my name in the title of the episode even though I didn't. I'm glad the answer is finally out. Though. Yes. Now the, we can share it with the world. Update your Wikipedia's listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and you're King of the Hill Times, I uh, especially your episode. I, I noticed like how much the show felt like ripped from the headlines or just like, oh, this was a, a weird news story or this was a, a moment in history, like not just, you know, swimming with dolphins going awry or like, you know, the the Texas sniper episode, Bob's Bob's yeah. favorite one, the dog dog afternoon like how much did you guys work to have these you know real life starting points for for episodes well, you know, one of the many things Greg did well, and he and he had the show operating so smoothly, and he had a big staff full of good writers. You could split that staff into two rooms, into three rooms, and every room would be a good room. And so he would send people out on days occasionally, just, okay, put, you know, you four people, just talk about things we're not doing with Peggy that we could be doing. That, you know, what would that woman be like? What would be funny about her that we're not doing right now? And, you know, and there would just be like overview days, which shows never have the time to do, and they never have the manpower to do it because all the best writers have to be in working on the, the line that we're rewriting right now. And it was just such a well-written show, and, he had, and Greg is so great at the big picture and the overview that there were good people who put serious time into what are we trying to say here? And what are we trying to say with the show? What are we trying to say with this person? What are we trying to say with that person? Because, you know, we had we knew and we had such fantastic actors. I mean, there's nobody better than Kathy and Jimmy and Steven Root. And so if you're not doing good things with them, you're, you know, you're really not living up to your obligation as a writer. And so we had, we were not just encouraged, you know, you would be sent into a room with three or four people and it was your do- job today to think, big picture and to think general avenues for the show to explore that we're not exploring yet and I really feel like that paid off it was it was you know it's it's hard to 
hand out the credit equally. It was a beautifully, perfectly run show. But hmm. part of what was so perfect about how Greg ran the show was he put together a terrific bunch of people who had the time and the ability to show how good they were. It was it was it was really a terrific writing experience. Yeah, we just revisited the first season for a podcast series. It's been fun to see characters like Peggy, who started out as a fairly naive mom, grow into one of the most unique characters on television. <laughs> <laughs> no, she got strange, and in, in, in a way, I really thought it was always consistent with her character. I mean, that was the thing they they really you know they really explored the character. One of the many really smart things Greg did, he intentionally created the Bill character to absorb the dumb jokes because, as a former Simpsons writer, he knew you know how complicated it had gotten trying to defend homer's character from all the dumb jokes we came up with for him so he intentionally created a character he, he called bill the heat shield and, and, and bill would be the repository for every dumb joke the room came up with and thus would not be assigned to hank and make hank dumber it was he, he's such a smart guy Geez, we could ask a million more questions, but uh, I guess, you know, you did write for The Critic as well. I, I just was curious, like, were those, was that more of a freelance thing or were you in a writer's room? And and also, you know, you, you wrote probably the most remembered episode of the show, the Siskel and Ebert episode. So, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> uh, you know, that, was, that again, was a fantastic group of, of of writers and actors and it, it was a fun thing i was only part-time the first year i was closer to full-time the next year because my other show that i was working on wasn't there the second year yeah well the siskel and ebert thing is just partially it's nice you know when you get that assignment because a lot of you know something that would happen would be you know you, that was always going to be a special episode and, and everybody on every level was going to give it a special level of attention and when they turn to you and point to you and say would you like to write that i mean that's a cool thing because you just mm. like it's nice when the people who run the show feel that you're competent enough to get that assignment. It's not like your your script will be untouched, but the fact that they're they picked you because you you really want somebody to not screw up the Sims, the Siskel and Ebert episode, and when you get picked to do the episode that they don't want screwed up, it's like that's that's a nice thing. I didn't get to meet them. It was it was always a fun thing, and so, some of those people were so good. Charles Napier, who did the voice mm. of the boss, was such a cool, funny guy. He drove in from the desert in this beater car and. <laughs> had that amazing voice and had done you know this really strange cool career he was the guy who got his face ripped off in silence of the lambs <laughs> yeah. he was in the space hippies episode of star trek he had just <laughs> he had he'd been around forever and did so many cool things and he was such a genuinely funny guy yeah. i mean it was you know people like you know charles napier and rip Torn. and it still surprises me sometimes like so much stuff happened like occasionally now i think oh that's right i wrote for rip Torn. i wrote for charles <laughs> napier that happened i didn't dream that you know like it was it was such a fortunate career and in the in the 25 years since that siskelonia episode aired it's it's become a uh, you know not by design but it's become a touching memorial to the two men now that they've both passed it's it's very it's very sweet now if you mm -hmm. watch it again no it's it's nice and i you know and i guess it wasn't uh, you know, thanks to the found footage guys, I guess there's some footage, you know, attesting to the fact that they didn't always love each other that much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, you know, they, of course, were like a huge part of our culture. And, you know, I mean, to this day, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes is so descended from Siskel and Ebert. I mean, they they changed the culture. And there were so many. I, I, I forget. I think the problem was they lived in Los Angeles. One of the coolest things about The Critic was that a lot of people were recorded in New York. And it was just before people were being remotely recorded like we're doing now. Mm. And so I would be the guy 
guy who would be flown to New York in this crazy, like, do an overnight flight, record Jimmy Breslin, and then get on a flight <laughs> and fly back that day. I was so messed up when I got back to Los Angeles. But I met Jimmy Breslin that way. I met Bob Costas, Queen Latifah that way. It was, it was, it was one of the coolest jobs wow. I ever had. Yeah. Oh, that's nice, yes. man. Uh, well, we could ask you a thousand more questions, yes. but uh, our time is up. But thank you so much, John. This is very great. I finally got the answer to my John Vitti Presents question. <laughs> I was saving it to yeah, the I'm end. sorry about that. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, you work with all these amazing writers and you're grateful to so much they do. And, and you just have to be a good sport about stuff they do that you wouldn't have done. And that's one of them. And it wasn't done maliciously, just as a little thank you for <laughs> sticking them with the rewrite. And you just, and you you just accept it as you know part of the amazing experience of getting to work with those people yeah so mystery solved <laughs> and uh, do you do you have any upcoming stuff you'd want our listeners to know about no no i'm i'm very happy i always intended my my last movie i i actually i mean i'm in the happiest position of all i won't get a credit on it but i have a movie coming up that i don't have to work on because i worked on it for a year in 2012 and then it got shelved and then the director got it made six years after the fact so i have no idea how much of the stuff i did will show up on the screen but it's always hap it's nice to have a movie coming up but the price for that always is that you have to work and you have to come up with good stuff and writing such a miserable thing. So I actually, for the next year or so, I have the happiest situation of all where I have a movie coming up, but I don't have any work to do. That's so, amazing. Uh, That's nice. But, but I won't, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I won't be credited. So it wouldn't be proper for me to say what it is, but it's, it's, it's a perfect way to be retired, to, to have something that you can say is, is, is in the future tense, even though my career is in the past tense. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, John, for all your time. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no, and thank you for what you do. And, you, know, I, you know, sometimes we get, you know, we get busy and some of us, the post-career people will be traveling a bunch, but we are eternally grateful for the time that people have spent watching the show. I mean, everyone who started out on the show thought that it was going to be a one summer job and then we would have to go and get real jobs after the show got canceled. You know, I saw the death of the show when the first episode came back with the terrible <laughs> so I, you know, I don't think any of us have ever gotten past being grateful for the time people have spent watching the show and discussing the show and even the stuff they didn't like. So, so thank you to you guys and, oh. and, and really to everybody out there. You locked my office and I wanted to get my Harvard mug.